I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. If you do not have a Bible, we would love to gift you one. It's right there in the pew in front of you. It'll be the same version I'll be preaching out of today. And uh, you're going to find the, the place, if you're not familiar with where Luke chapter 5 is, you can turn to page 913 and look for the small letter 17, and that will be in this Bible. Uh, certainly, if you have uh, an e-device, you can get on the Bible app, and we recommend you use that. It'll have the notes on there if you find us. Uh, if you need help finding that, we can show you how to do that later. But the Bible, you can open up to Luke chapter 5, verses 17 to 26. So last week, we began a, a new journey into a new series, uh, and this is a series that not only our church is being a part of, but it's an emphasis of our network of churches throughout North America uh, called Who's Your One? And, and it's an emphasis that, especially here in the spring, as we're moving towards Easter, as we're moving towards the, the day that we proclaim the resurrection, the freedom from sin, the redemption that Jesus Christ alone purchased on the cross, the reason that the gospel is the gospel, that as we're looking, moving towards that day of the calendar year that impacts all the rest of the days, that we also reflect, God, that gospel was given to me by someone to me. Now, where is my investment to share that with someone else? Where is my role in bringing that news to someone else? So last week we kind of began looking at, first of all, what it means to follow Jesus and the seriousness of our role. Now, we are less than 30 days away from Easter, but I'm going to invite you to take a next step. We've been looking at different steps throughout the beginning of this year. We said we're going to invest as a church in just the basics. Prayer, evangelism, that means sharing the gospel, discipleship, growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. We were going to go back to those simple things. We weren't going to depend on a program. We weren't going to depend on anything like else. But we are going to take serious. What does that look like in our life? And so we began this early year saying at 1002, Based on Luke 10 2, when Jesus says that the harvest is plentiful, so, send, so uh, pray to the Lord to send out workers into his harvest. Because the laborers are few, so pray to the Lord to send out laborers. We began asking people to do that at 10 02, in that, in that spirit, not just to pray that verse, but in that spirit to say, God, help me see the harvest as you do. Help me see the need for laborers and send me where you will. Now we're moving towards this emphasis of, of really bringing it personal, home, not just praying in general, but God, who is the one that you're placing in my life today? And help me not be so bogged down by the, the many that I miss the one. We need to see the many, but I don't want to miss the one in the process. So in the next couple weeks, if you got one of these when you came in, if you didn't, they're at the little tables as you exit. It's a little bookmark to go in your Bible. And it has a little tear card in it. For some of you, whenever I ask, who's your one that God has placed in your heart, you already know that name right now. You know them personally. They're, they may be a person that is de-churched and need to get into a home where they can, a church home where they can grow in the grace of knowledge of Christ and you need to help them be discipled. But it may be a lost person. Maybe it's someone that's even you're related to and their name popped up. Write their name on that card and pray for them and pray, God, give me the strength and the wisdom and the words to carefully and clearly and graciously share your mercy and your good news. Not to beat them overhead with the Bible, but to show them the love that you showed me. Help 
me do that. Write their name and be praying for them. And you may say, well, what, what do I pray? Well, then on the bottom part of that card is a 30-day journey through Scripture. That as you're praying, read through these narratives and say, God, let me see how, once again, you work and you can use people that are even nameless in the Bible to work your miracles and save multitudes. That's what we're going to be looking at today. As we look at Luke chapter 5, we're going to be looking at some nameless dudes that changed a neighborhood, a city, and that were a part of the initial movement of people following Jesus. So here is what we're going to be emphasizing today. We're going to be seeing missions, and you've just heard us talk about that. You've seen a little message about what God is doing in Minneapolis. But it's easy to talk about missions, to even learn about missions, and yet forget our personal role in the mission. Learning about missions in public, but forgetting and realize, not realizing our personal role in the mission. So here we're going to see that personal role played out. Stand with me as we honor God in the reading of His Word. The Gospel of Luke, penned by the uh, Luke, the doctor, uh, but preserved for us, authored by God. It says, On one of those days, while he, Jesus, was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and also from Jerusalem. And the Lord's power to heal was in him, him being Jesus. Just then, some men came, carrying on a stretcher a man who was paralyzed. They tried to bring him in and set him down before him, And since they could not find a way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on the stretcher through the roof tiles into the middle of the crowd before Jesus. So seeing their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. Then the scribes and the Pharisees began to think to themselves, Who is this man who speaks blasphemy? I mean, who can forgive sins but God alone? But perceiving their thoughts, Jesus replied to them, Why are you thinking this in your heart? Which is easier for me to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Get up and walk. But, so that you know, may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He told the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up. Take your stretcher and go home. Immediately he got up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and and went home glorifying God. Then everyone was astounded and they were giving glory to God and they were filled with awe and said, we have seen incredible things today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is your word. It is a gift that came from your heart, your voice, and it is God-breathed. It is able to pierce our hearts. It is able to teach us and correct us and rebuke us and equip us for every good work. So what we take and hold and read today is not to be received lightly. And I pray that because it came from you, you would use it to do what only you can today. While we don't worship this, we see the God who spoke it and we worship Him. We worship you. So Jesus, help have your way in this time as we learn together. And may the response be 
giving glory to God for what we have seen today. In Jesus' name, amen. And may be seated. So, when we get into the Bible, sometimes we read, and, and maybe you have a good grasp of the Bible, maybe this story is old hat to you. you you've seen it, it's like a familiar staple in your, your stories from the Bible, picturing that. Maybe uh, you grew up and, 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 and you remember Sunday school and the little flannel grams and, and the little moving the little piece of flannel piece down the, the felt. And that's, that's how you remember this story. Maybe that's not you. Maybe you're a VeggieTales generation and you just see uh, cucumbers and tomatoes and that kind of thing and you're thinking about that form of the story. Maybe you remember it in a picture. Maybe it's something in a museum that's Renaissance artwork. I don't know what comes to mind when you think about this story if you're familiar with it. But some in this room... It may be the very first time you've ever heard that story. I would, I would not want to presume that, that you know every single detail about the Bible. And I want you to know, I don't know every single detail about the Bible. I'm growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ every day just as much as I hope you are. And, but here, when we get into reading the Bible, I understand that sometimes people have questions. And this is not the best avenue for people to raise their hand and say, uh, excuse me, I have a question, that kind of thing. It's, it's just not what we are used to in a worship setting. And so we want to help people get the answers to their questions that they may be asking. And one of those is, what does the Bible say? That is why we read this together. That's why it's on the screen. That's why we want to put a Bible in your hands. That's why we ask you to open up the Bible app. Whatever it is, we want you to have the Bible before your eyes, in your hands, and hopefully that 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 reading and hearing God's Word gets into your heart. We never want to make this just a motivational speech or pep talk or some coach's rally uh, rally game before the NCAA tournament. Apparently my team did not get the best rally speech. They lost in the, in the first round. But that's okay. I'm not bitter. But that's not what this is about. This is not me just coming up here trying to look cool or clever. We want to see what God's Word says. It's important. And may it be not only important in our worship time here, but it may it be the central aspect of your growth at home, in the workplace, that you are taking time to say, what does God's Word say? That's why we want you to take that Bible with you. Not to put it on a shelf and pick it up next week, but to get in it until it gets in you. We want to see what it means. Sometimes when we read a Bible verse or something, we're like, all right, what, what does that mean? And uh, we instead of trying to take it out of context or think, well, this is what I'm going through in life, so it must mean that. No, let's see what it meant when it was written. What, who was the author? What was the audience like? What was the aim? Here, this part of the Bible, the Gospel of Luke, is, is generally considered to be written by uh, Luke, who was a doctor, a physician. And he was a very careful historian in his day. And he took time to share with his countrymen that were both Hebrew and Greek-speaking Jews, what it is to know this Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the miracle worker, the rabbi, the, the radical teacher, the one who went to the cross, the one who overcome the grave. He wants them to know. And so the book of Luke and, and the book of Acts, they're partnering books. The book, Luke writes both of them. The book of Luke is an eyewitness testimony and a research over the life of Jesus. The book of Acts He writes to the same person to say this is what has happened because of Jesus in the church around us. This is how God birthed it. And so they're 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 meant to be just seamless works. Written to a man, the Bible tells us, called Theophilus. 
Now, we don't know who Theophilus was. Maybe he was a rich person that commissioned Luke to do this research for him. You could break down the word to mean God lover. It could just mean this is written to God lovers. Um, but whatever it is, he writes this thing because he has a point. This in the opening lines of Luke. So that you may be certain of the things that you have heard and seen. That when it comes to the Bible, the meaning is that it doesn't want you to be unclear about who Jesus is. About his identity. About what he has spurred on and caused to change the world. The book of Luke is the longest book in the New Testament. And it was written somewhere around 50 to 60 AD. So we talked about the book of Matthew last week. Luke's considered to be written after the book of Matthew. But generally still within the, the 15 to 25 years after Jesus walked the earth. So these are first generation Christians. These are first generation witnesses. Those who belonged to the church and those who didn't. Those who could testify and said, well, that's false. That didn't happen. If they didn't believe it or, or weren't there. Or, or there on the scene, excuse me. But also the church saying, yeah, we were there. We, we saw that. That definitely happened. And they went to their graves, many of them facing a martyr's death, holding dear to what they knew to be true, what they knew to be confirmed, what they knew they had seen and witnessed. So we need to ask, well, how do, what does it say? And what does it mean? And then how does it apply? This is where it, it brings the rub, if you will. Like it gets into the grit of our lives today. The meaning doesn't change, but the application to where we are, where we sit, where, we, where we've been and where we're going, it meets us there. And then lastly, the aspect of worship is, will I trust what God is saying in the midst of this? And as we look at today's aim, looking at this particular snippet of the Gospel of Luke, we're going to see that following Jesus, this idea of being His follower, not just trying to take on a, a religious label, but a disciple of Jesus, it means coming to a realization. And that realization is our personal role in his mission. Now, the corporate role is important, but the personal role is also valued. And not only recognizing our personal role, but recognizing his greater power that brings restoration. Now, when you look at this narrative, this is this, this moment in the text, you can find it also, uh, for greater clarity, you can look at the book of Mark, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and you can look at Matthew, chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. They give you the, the points of view from those that were in the room. But here, as we look at this, this gospel, we're going to notice a few things. And the first thing I want you to notice is these men. Some of your versions will say, some men. Now, what is missing there? Any clue? Names. Yeah, we have no idea this side of heaven, nor will we ever until we reach eternity, who these men, some men are nameless, faceless. We, we have no clue. We don't know what they look like. We don't know who they came, came to be. They could have become somebody important, but the Bible never points back and says you can be sure that these four guys helped this one guy. And these are their names, so you remember them and honor them and recognize them and try to be like them and, and label them as the super Christians. No, these are just these guys. Just these men. But here's the important that set these men apart and pushes us to learn what we need to learn today. It is that these men had a real mission. A real mission. Now, now most of us will say as a church, well, we have a mission. We, we kind of know what that's supposed to be. Or, or maybe you don't know what the mission of the church is. Maybe you don't even know what the mission of this particular church is. But let's just think about it. Everybody has a mission. 
Some of them are more realistic than others. Some of those are more evident than others. If you're a parent, your mission is to raise some children, help them to live from the ages of of birth to, to 18, to leave and depart the home launched, ready to go into the world. That's a part of your mission, right? To raise healthy kids. If, if you're married, when you, when you commit those vows, no one commits those vows saying, eh, you know, this might be, I'm semi-serious. No, your mission is to succeed as a husband and a wife. To be together till death do you part in sickness and health. That's a mission to love and cherish one another. And you may not know fully what that means at the moment, but my hope is that you grow in that. I'll be the first to admit that when I made those vows, I was very serious about the vows I made, but I did not know all that it entailed. I'm thankful for a patient wife who helped me to understand a little bit more what that looks like. And that's a beautiful thing. Whenever you get a job, you have a mission there. For a sales company, it's to what? Sell. You don't sell anything, you're definitely not accomplishing the mission. For a service, it's to provide a service. And to be good at it, to be quality. If it's a restaurant, to feed people good food that they enjoy coming back to. Because you might get people to come in one time, but if it's no good and the, the service is terrible and the quality is absolutely atrocious, I'm going to tell you, you're not coming back. Mission drives us. This is why companies spend lots of money to develop mission statements for their companies to keep them on course. They're usually simple statements. And when we get off course from our mission statement, all of a sudden we find ourselves, well, not even doing what the company or the entity or or organization or institute was ever meant to do. They get sidetracked on different things. And these might be good things, but they're not the main thing. They're not the central thing. Our mission, if... If we want to say what it is, it's on little cards that sometimes you find on the bulletin. It's to lead generations of people to become fully devoted followers of Christ. To lead generations of people to become fully devoted followers of Christ. That's the basic outline of who we are and what we're meant to do. As a church, as as individuals, corporately together, as disciples. It helps define what is basic, that that we see generations, no matter where they are, old or young, rich or poor, black or white, English speaking or not, and we help them to become a fully devoted follower of Christ. That helps keep things basic. It also reminds us that this is the essential stuff. All the other stuff is just peripheral. All the other stuff is just the niceties. But this is what is good. This is what must be maintained. It shows us how to measure success. That if we're not meeting that goal, it doesn't matter how many good things we could ever do, we can't call it success. We need to stay focused. For these men, for these men, these unnamed men, the mission was essential and basic. Get the paralytic to Jesus. Simple. Get person from point A Point B, so that God can change their A to Z. That was the the point. Here's the rub. These men had a mission, it was clear. What defines your mission? In life, as a follower of Christ. Most things you could probably be very clear on. Like I said, the parenting thing, that's pretty clear. The job title should be semi-clear, depending on what part of the world you're working in. 
The marriage part's pretty clear. You should be. But what about your walk as a disciple? What is your mission? And certainly, are you aligned with our mission? Especially if you say, hey, I'm a member of this church. I'm a part of this family. Yeah. What is our mission? What is basic for us? Like, that we just don't get off this course. Period. What is essential for us to accomplish it? How do we measure success? Because if we're not willing to do that, well, then we're willing to say, oh, I'm just going to want to do a la-di-da type Christianity. That if I skirt around some good or some things that I think sound nice every now and then, I'll be content. And yet, as disciples, Jesus calls His followers to be fishers of men. You know, Jesus had a mission statement. I think she had quite a few of them. But one time He was very direct. He says, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That was basic for Jesus. That was the gospel. That was essential for Jesus. That drove him to the cross. That was what measured success for Jesus because he overcame the cross and the resurrection and even the conflict and the gravity of what that would take. That was how he knew he would be glorified. That was how he knew that what he had intended to do from that first bite of the forbidden fruit in the garden to the point that he completely brings back a restoration of the world, that that moment is what marks the success of it all. The redemption of a holy God to an unholy people to draw him to himself. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And may we be so very thankful that that mission statement applied to Jesus. Because we would not be here were it not for that. We wouldn't. And we would not be here were it not for some guys, some men, some ladies that said that's the essential part for us to help that person get to Jesus. I want you to know something else about these men. Not only they had a real mission, and I want to be careful about that because I think sometimes we can once again say, oh, I have a mission, but if it's not applicable to our life, we don't consider that real. Because we're not getting any skin in the game. But secondly, these men had a real expectation. Once again, for these men, the mission was to get the paralytic to Jesus. Why? Why was that the mission? Why was that the the central thing? To get this man to Jesus. Because they believed Jesus could do something. They believed Jesus could actually work in a way that changed this man's life. Now, we're going to talk about it in a moment. They probably got more than they bargained for. But that's what the hope that they had. That they had a real belief that You know what? If I get Jesus to that person and get that person to Jesus, their life will never, ever be the same. I believe that. We see these men believed it. They had that conviction. It was there. We talk about it and we say the nicety of when we pray, we're talking to a God who's able to do immeasurably more than all that we could ask or imagine. That is biblical. That's Ephesians. That's a part of who we are. But is it the real expectation of our life? Because if it is, that will drive us to get to people, get people to Jesus. Because we believe that Jesus, He's a real guy. He's not some guy long ago that ceased to exist. He's not just some figment that's silent, never smiles in a bathrobe. He is real. He is living today. He destroyed the works of the grave and the works of death and the work of sin. And he overcame it and he changed lives then. And he changes lives today that he is real, 
that He does real work, that He has real compassion, and He cares for those that are come to Him, and He alone, alone is the provider of real redemption. So here's the rub on that. Do we believe the Gospel is the real answer? Do we believe the Gospel and getting people to Jesus is the life changer? And do we live with that expectation? That's what we want to do, man. I want to get people to Jesus. You see, the Gospel in itself, what we believe about it, that's the real mission determination factor. Do we really believe it changes life? Did it, did it really change mine? Did it really change yours? I'm going to tell you a resounding yes. I wish it was overnight success as far as transformation. I really do. I wish I could tell you that, man, I was a complete, utter, losing sinner and, and scumbag that walked the earth and all of a sudden there and, and out popped a preacher and, 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 and never sinned again. I wish I could tell you that, but that's not true. But growing in the grace and knowledge and the God who gives a second chance with breath in my lungs each day and a heartbeat in my chest until the day He calls me home, I've seen the Gospel is so much more the answer than I even bargained for in the beginning. And it has transformed my life over and over and over again. Not because I deserved it, but because His grace is real. His good news is life-changing. His glory is is evident and it will alter how your life plan is set out. It will alter your expectations. Third, I want you to notice about these men that they had real obstacles. Real obstacles. For these mission, these men, what was their mission? To get the paralytic to Jesus. Simple. They did not deter from the mission. They did not deter from their expectation, but Lo and behold, they faced obstacles. How are we going to do this? Perhaps you've heard the phrase, and and I've even used it before, I'm sure. When God shuts the door, He opens a window. Cute, right? Sounds pleasing and nice to the ear. It's not found anywhere in the Bible. It's one of those phrases that we sometimes think, oh, that's biblical, right? Once again, there's phrases that people say, oh, the Bible says that. And it might allude to certain things, but it doesn't say it specifically. Like, cleanliness is next to godliness, Not in the Bible. This too shall pass? Not in the Bible. For whom the bell tolls? It's a book by Ernest Hemingway. It's not a Bible. God will never give me more than I can handle. Not in the Bible. Spare the rod, spoil the child. Discipline is taught in the Bible, but that verse is not there. And neither is this one. So whenever they got to the door, and it was crowded with people not only that were from that neighborhood, from Galilee, but people from down south, from Judea, people from the capital city of Jerusalem. Some were very, very educated. Some were very, very devout. Some were just regular Joes and above average Joes. They were there. So what do they do? Well, the door's shut. I guess we should wait for God to open a window. No. They went up on the roof. Well, 
It's a tiled roof. What do you think we should do? How about we break it down and go through it? Um, well, that sounds hard. Yeah. That sounds difficult. Uh-huh. Um, well, that's a creative idea. Might work. Let's try it. But what about the risk? I mean, people are going to be like coming out and looking and saying, what are those guys doing? Who do those guys think they are? Uh, what about this homeowner? Maybe they're a friend of ours or maybe they're not. We're going to destroy part of their house. Oh, this is going to be dirty, by the way. Our hands are going to get filthy. In fact, some of these tiles, I mean, they're made out of sediment and rock and whatever the animals left on the ground. It's, it's going to be messy. And once we do this, we're going to have to walk through the repercussions. We're probably going to fix this guy's roof after it. Yeah. Probably can't leave the damage in the wake of it. Yeah. But what's our mission? To get the man to Jesus. So is it worth it? To go through the obstacles, even though they're hard even though they're difficult, even though they might be smelly, even though it may be dirty, even though it might be uncomfortable, even though it might put us at risk and be costly and we have to walk through the repercussions. What's the mission? And do we believe that the outcome, the expectation, if I can go through this obstacle, the outcome's going to be good? Do we believe that that hard? That wholeheartedly that we're willing to do that? Because if we don't have ex- expectation, we certainly aren't going to go through the obstacles. And if the mission is not real to us, we're not going to have expectations to begin to do it. So the obstacle is just something in the future that I don't even have to worry about. Because I'm never going to get there. It's never going to be costly and dear to me. But they did. And the amazing part about it, I don't know if any of you ever tried to cut a wall through something. I mean, if it was sheetrock, maybe you could like, you know, do the whole thing just pushing through it and then automatically drop everything and it may take on all of two or three minutes. But they had to bust through this roof and then they had to figure out a way to lower their friends safely down into the, into this room. And there's still people in this room. They didn't just all like, the roof's caving in, let's go. They're staying there. And Jesus is there. He didn't like, well, I'm not sitting through this. This is a mess. Can you believe this? What are these guys doing? What, what kind of place is this? He has a shoddy design in this house. No, no. He's like, I know what's about to happen. And I'm waiting. And I'm ready. Because I'm the one that put it in the heart of those people to get that man to Jesus. You ever think about that? The reason it's there in the first place is because God put it on your heart to do that. So of course He's there. And these men, man, they got the real bargain. They got a bargain of bargains. I know some of the people in this room, you are bargain shoppers and you love a bargain. I wish I was a better bargain shopper. Not really, I don't care. I'm like, I want it now. Give it to me now. But what did these men, what was their mission? To get the paralytic to Jesus. But what else did they get? That The goal was to get the man to Jesus to see something happen. Ultimately, they believed that, man, they'd heard about Jesus healing a leper. They'd heard about Jesus speaking and, and, and all of a sudden there was this like net full of fish. They'd heard about Jesus turning some water into wine. 
Let's see what he can do with this man. But what else did they get? They got the gospel on display. That there's this Jesus, and yes, he is a miracle worker. Yes, he is powerful. Yes, he is loving and compassionate. Yes, he teaches and has the best phraseology, the best lectures, the best parables, the best stories, the best illustrations, the best communication of who God is. Yes, He has all of that. But what does He have that is more than anyone else, more than anything else? And that is the Gospel just pouring out of Him. And seeing this man... The friend's mission was to get the paralytic to Jesus because they wanted him to walk again. And the first thing Jesus sees is the need for this man to be forgiven of his sin. The core need, the real miracle in the moment is, is not the healing of the lame man, it's the healing of the soul. The gospel on display, they see that. And then they see the restoration that comes from that redemption. That in the middle of this room, there are people that are, that are questioning what's going on. But, but Jesus leaves up the, the reality. He says that I've provided redemption for this man's soul, but I've also restored his life, what was taken from him. What he's had to do without. They had, the bargain that's there is not only the gospel on display and a restoration of the man's legs and life, but there's the answer to Jesus' identity in the room. While people are questioning in their heads, they're like, who does this guy think he is? We, we've read the Bible. Only God can do this. They had the temple system. You had to go and you had to provide the sacrifice. And you had to have someone to pray over you and pray over your sacrifice and absolve you. And, and, and then you had to go through all these processes. And then you had to live a holy life to, to keep that, that forgiveness and that grace. And so when Jesus says this, this is not something light. And we would look at it like, oh yeah, of course Jesus can forgive sin. We live on the other side of the cross. It makes sense to us. But here, the reason it's telling us is because people were coming to the conclusion this Jesus means business. And this Jesus is God. Because no one can forgive sin except God. And Jesus is like, you're catching on. You're not too thick after all. You got this. He gives the answer to Jesus' identity. But then the last part that he gives, the bargain. They, the mission was to get the man to Jesus. But then they get the gospel on display. They get restoration from that redemption. They get a clearer picture of Jesus' identity. But then they leave. Man, they're busting at the seams of worship. They're busting at the seams of worship. They says the man got up and he just began glorifying God. And I... I that should be the natural response to facing an encounter with Jesus. That who are we that Jesus should even value this life? No matter how good or how bad we've ever been, none of us deserve that. And he's glorifying God because the Lord thought of me. The Lord cared for me. The Lord redeemed me. The Lord restored me. I am refreshed and renewed that I'm going to worship the Lord. He got up giving glory to God. But he wasn't the only one. It says the people are astounded. And some of them are probably highly educated that were astounded. Some of them maybe not. But all of them, it says that they said, we have never seen anything like this. I mean, in all the years, all the history of all the miracles that's happened in the land of Israel, among the nation. And they're saying, nothing like this has ever even come close. 
And they began giving glory to God. You see, that's what happens when we're clear that we have a real mission. We don't delineate from that. When we look at Jesus and we recognize, man, we have eager expectation about who you are, we can't wait to be in the room, not only on Sunday, but Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday with Jesus when it comes to opening the Word. Because we have an expectation about who He is based on what the Word says about Him. That we move through obstacles and we don't say, well, I'll just wait for God to open a window. No, we'll say, God, if you want me to get in the muck, and that's what you did for me when you came to earth, lead me on, Jesus. Captain, my captain, I follow you. And then we'll look back and say, man, we got the bargain. We thought we were going to have to work hard. We thought, I mean, we will have to work hard. Make no mistake. I don't seem to be, you know, like we just have to be lazy. But on the other end of it, I'll say it was nothing. It was minuscule compared to what Jesus had in store. Because He's the one that does immeasurably more. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, today as we... um, so take time to come to the end of this worship gathering and I pray that the, the people that are in here, my heart included, that we're ready to respond to You. That we understand a little bit better about what our purpose is here. Why we even exist. Why we even came in this room to begin with. But I also ask that in this moment that those that came here today, they're getting more than they bargained for. That That once again, the gospel, that good news is fresh and on display for them. That that you bring restoration from your redemption to homes, to families, to neighborhoods, to, to workplaces. Because of who you are. I am praying that your identity is clear as day for the soul that needs it. And I am praying that as we leave here, We leave with a desire to worship more than when we even first got here. Because once again, when we come to see you, we get a fresh glimpse and we realize we've never seen anyone like you before. We've never witnessed someone who would do the work that you've done like this before. Help us not lose that focus. Help us not be detoured. Help us live with a real mission, real expectation, willing to go through real obstacles. Because we realize when we give people to you, it's worth it. And I'm thankful that you never lost sight of your mission. Once again, Jesus. That's the very reason we have this room today. That we talk about you today. Because you didn't let the cup pass from you. You were willing to take it full on with the cross. To not let it detour you. And you overcame. And because you overcame, you saved the lost. Let us recognize this today as we respond in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Each time we come to the conclusion of the worship God, we have this moment where We give you the ability to respond. That's what an invitation is. We invite you to 
take now what you know of Jesus from moments and years past to this moment now and come to face to face with Jesus and respond to what He is doing in your life. For some of you, that may mean you need to talk to someone, you have questions or you need help and counsel. Maybe it's the first step with Jesus. You realize, I've been living, trying to live my life without Him for so long. Or, or maybe just a touch, a smidgen of Christianity. But I, I've never really followed Jesus. Today is that first day where you step out and say, I need peace with God and I'm following after the Lord and asking Him to save me. If that's you and you need help to, to walk through that process, I'm not trying to sell you a bill of goods, but I'll be here to help you if you need someone to talk to and work through that. For some of you, it's saying, all right, I've been kind of floundering and I need to find a solid place where I can grow as a Christian to be that follower. To to be planted and to grow and to reproduce and, and to do that which God has called me to do. If you need someone to pray with on what that next step looks like or joining a church or being baptized or whatever your next step is, I'll be here at the front. It doesn't have to be me, but I'm here available. But wherever you are at this moment, the point is to respond to what you know of Jesus. To get right with Him based on what He has already done to be right with you. If you need help, I'll be at the front. You follow, please, as the Lord leads on your life.